Good evening and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host, Krista Kafer, Sunday columnist for the Denver Post. And we're joined today by Patricia Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, former member of the State House and State Senate, Penfield Tate, now with Tate Law, Elena Alvarez, reporter with Axios, and Scott Martinez, attorney with Martinez and Partners, LLC. It's been decades since a passenger jet suffered a mid-air collision here in the United States, thanks in part to collision avoidance sensors. Unfortunately, sensors can go off for no reason at high elevation. Airports approaching pilots will often turn them off. The FAA says it's time to rethink that. Meanwhile, Denver City Council approved $500 million package for system upgrades. Some are concerned that these contracts will not be fulfilled if the federal funding money does not come through. What's going to happen next? Patricia Calhoun. Well, going back to 1986, which was the last mid-air collision, that was right about when Colorado and Denver were talking about a new airport. And it's amazing the history of building DIA that people have forgotten. For example, when you talk about baggage, the original baggage system, which was a newfangled automatic, automatic baggage system that United, Airport, uh, United Airlines wanted, ate the suitcases. If you wonder why you start, you have funny parking on level three, it's because that's where the now obsolete automatic baggage system was. It ate all the luggage. They had to go back to the normal cart system. So let's hope if this $500 million doesn't come through, they can always go back to the cart system because it's worked for the last, what, 30 years. The mid-air collision issue is really fascinating because it turns out the FAA has known that the pilots turn off those warnings. Basically, when they're ready to come do the landing, they've heard the last notifications. But with these two runways that are very close together, now they're a little worried that maybe something could go wrong. So I would suggest, rather than let the airlines decide if they're going to turn things off, which is what's been going on for 12 years, they encourage the pilots to really put on the warnings. Makes sense to me. Elena here at the table broke a story today about Phil Washington, the CEO of DIA, who had a search warrant out for him, not a search warrant for him, but to get information from him about a case in L.A. Between warrants, possible crashes, and grants not coming through, are any of these real issues that will go forward for, D, for DIA? Uh, they, they are all real issues, and, and, and unfortunately, it's part of an ongoing legacy, frankly, of poor management out at the airport. Um, we saw what happened with the whole Great Hall debacle, and frankly, we're still paying for that in dealing with the consequences of that. And, and the issue with Phil Washington is, is not new. I mean, remember that um, there were similar situations when he left RTD to go to Los Angeles. I believe one of his A was subsequently indicted and went to prison um, for similar claims of bid rigging or fixing or pay to play. So this is not new territory when it comes to Phil Washington. Um, one would hope that the feds do a better job of vetting. Um, you've got one instance you know of with Denver at, at, at RTD. Um, you have these allegations in L.A., and they've been swirling for quite some time. So I don't know if there's any substance there with regard to Phil Washington, but it is troubling that he's been named um, in these search warrants. Um, his name was mentioned before, and frankly, that was one of the reasons why some of the city council members were a bit concerned about him becoming the new um, head of DIA. So we'll see what happens. And as for the baggage system, well, one can only hope and pray. Elena, thank you for breaking that story this morning. What, it, what exactly is going on there? 
Exactly. So a search warrant that uh, named Phil Washington last year uh, was executed this week uh, in Los Angeles. It's all related to a corruption investigation. The, the warrant is basically... Um, aiming to unearth information about favoritism when it comes to how L.A. Metro was uh, awarding contracts. And as we know, Washington was leading uh, L.A. Metro for six years prior to coming to DIA. So why this all matters really is that the Warren execution is happening right before Phil Washington's nomination confirmation process to lead the FAA. As we know, President Biden tapped him early uh, in July. Um, and that could potentially affect this federal funding that DIA is really betting on with this $500 million baggage system. Um, assuming Washington could help, you know, deliver it once he's in the seat. Um, what to watch will certainly be how this confirmation process goes. A White House official told me today they're planning to see the process through. Um, but the leaders of the Senate uh, committee that's going to oversee his confirmation are already raising concerns uh, over his credibility. So it will be really interesting to watch this play out. So is Elena and, and Penn correct that these are not just blips on a radar, but significant issues? Scott. So... Uh, this is a great time to be talking about Denver International Airport as it's uh, resurged as the third busiest airport in the world. Um, and as we look at it, we, I think about how DIA sits in our political system. We have to remember that DIA is an enterprise. That means that underneath the Constitution, we as taxpayers don't fund it. It funds itself with the fees. Um, that it charges to the airlines and uh, to passengers. So as we think about how we want to keep track of how DIA is doing, uh, I remember that we're lucky to have our city council to oversee the contracts for an extra layer of transparency, and that's good for all of us. While they're not approving the actual dollars, it's not coming out of our pocket, it certainly is an opportunity for us to see where the money is going, how it's gonna be spent, and have some accountability, not just now, but in the future. Thank you, Scott. A young man having a mental health crisis crashes his car near a small mountain town. 70 minutes later, after the deputies have arrived, the 22-year-old has died of gunshot wounds. Police say that when they tried to get him out of the car, that he turned violent. His grieving parents and several agencies are trying to figure out what went so terribly wrong. Penn, what went so terribly wrong? Um, what went so terribly wrong is the convergence of um, inadequate training, um, probably a little bit of arrogance, and just not using common sense. Um, the, the, this is a, a textbook example of why people are talking about reforming policing, and, and some are saying defund the police, and, and I don't particularly agree with that, but you have a 22-year-old man who called 911 because he got stuck in a ditch and he was calling for help. It was clear to, to the dispatcher he was dealing with and others once they arrived on the scene, he either had an emotional or a cognitive or some sort of mental health crisis, but they knew something was going on. But the bottom line is he called for help. Law enforcement arrived. They try to coax him out of the car. He's got some tools because he's an amateur geologist. He's got a hammer and a small knife and some other things. He turns off the car so he's not a flight risk. He puts the keys on the dashboard. He holds his hands up. He even makes the heart symbol to police officers at some point, yet they're trying to force him out of the car. And what's interesting is Colorado State Patrol said, this guy's done nothing wrong. He's broken no laws. He called for help. I don't even know why we as police are even here interacting with him. 
But lo and behold, some one officer jumps on the hood of his car and either shines a flashlight or a pistol in the front door, and the kid ends up shot and dead. And the worst part of it is no one really disclosed this until the family insisted on seeing the body cam footage. And once you see the body cam footage, it's even more startling and more disturbing. Um, someone's going to be put on administrative leave. Somebody needs to be fired because this young boy was just murdered. Thank you, Penn. Elena, a number of larger districts have gone to a system where there are police, but there are also mental health professionals that can respond to issues like this. This is a much, a much smaller police force out in, uh, out in the mountains. Um, is this something that we need to replicate in other places, making sure that we have these professionals on hand? I absolutely think so. Uh, we have, you know, we've seen a lot of success. There have been national studies, I think even out of Stanford, uh, showing the success of Denver's co-responder program. Um, CPR's reporting on this story really struck me because they highlighted the fact that uh, on the in the jurisdictions bordering Clear Creek, Denver, and Jeffco, both of them have co-responder programs in place. And so it really begs the question, what would have happened had this happened, you know, a few miles down the road? Um, the state is investing in police alternative programs, which is, is really good to see considering their success. Um, and I think as we've talked about this, this case really underscores the importance of, of police alternative programs. I think it also really underscores the importance of police body cam uh, footage and just body cams in general. If this footage hadn't existed or been released, which is part of a state law uh, uh, that was passed in 2021, I don't know if the scrutiny or attention would have been placed on a case like this. And clearly, as we can see, something police were wrong in this. He should not have been killed. Um, so yes, I think that there is a lot more uh, investments that should go into programs like co-responder programs, the STAR program, um, to really just lower uh, the possibility of something like this happening again. It's so needless. Scott, if you were representing the parents, what would you advise them? Well. Uh, there's really uh, just a tragedy here. And so the parents are, are obviously grieving, um, the community is grieving. And when I think about uh, the human toll on this, it's just, it's just so high. Um, recognizing that, uh, the family has stated that they are initiating a lawsuit against the county, against the officers. Um, and when you're uh, initiating a lawsuit, you're hoping to not just get some some big payout. It really is how are you going to change the system, and so I I think the reporting uh, by Elson Sherry at CPR was great. Um, they talked about uh, how there are co-responder programs for mental health professionals in Jefferson County, Summit County, Denver. Uh, this should be a, a minimum bar for all of our jurisdictions where we provide non-lethal options, not persons who have alternatives to respond to cases where there is a mental health incident. Uh, and that's be something we should all expect as taxpayers is to, to de-escalate situations when they come here. And so if I'm the family, I'm seeking not just uh, some sort of monetary payout, but really a change in the system where we set that bar for all of us in the state that no matter where there's an incident, we get that mental health intervention that's really needed. Patty, is it possible the police felt like they couldn't just leave the scene and leave him in the car? What do you think their thinking was? Well, there were a lot of options between leaving the scene and shooting him dead. Let's face it, you could have one person outside. It was night, it's in Silver Plume, so it's fairly remote. But you could just have one person keeping an eye on the car. The only person who was in danger, he was a danger to himself, which is why he'd called for help. 
They could have towed the car with him in it. They could have just camped there overnight. They could have maybe called his parents. They could have called Denver or Jeffco and sent a mental health professional. There were so many options. There was no hurry. They didn't, but they did, it sounded like a whole circus of people who'd responded. They didn't have to shoot him, and that's the clear thing. So everyone's right. The great, what it proves is the body cams really are useful. We'd heard nothing about this case until the body cam footage was released to the parents. So that's been important. You think about Elijah McClain. If all the body camera footage, had, the body cameras had worked, you know, some of those supposedly didn't. But if you had those earlier, you'd be working towards justice a lot faster. And in this case, we will see justice sooner or later, but it won't bring them back. Thank you, Patty. Denver has gotten more violent. The number of murders was higher during the first half of this year than in 2021. If this keeps up, we could have the top record since 1989, 1981 rather. Other big cities have seen a drop in homicides this year. What explains the uptick in crime? Elena. The discrepancy we're seeing here in Denver compared to other cities, uh, Denver saw an uptick in homicides in the first half of uh, 2022, um, which was actually bucking a trend that we saw nationwide. Um, and criminologists aren't quite sure what that means uh, or why that's happening. But in general, uh, the crime wave has kind of confused criminologists in general who say that they will be studying this for, you know, a decade or so to really understand what's happening here. In general, their best guesses are socioeconomic issues uh, spurred by the pandemic are at play here. But another factor, some experts say, is that police departments are understaffed, and that is also uh, contributing to the crime problem. There's just not enough resources to combat it. Interestingly enough, uh, Mayor Hancock uh, this week in his final budget um, released uh, a line item that's allocating $8.4 million to increase the city's police department by 188 police officers. Um, that is the goal of that is to combat crime and uh, improve response times. But the big problem here is that the city has been uh, dealing with a recruitment and retention problem, not only in the police department, but across you know many agencies. And it's really unclear how they will get 188 more police officers when this is a problem actually plaguing departments across the country. Scott, you know, here in Denver, businesses are still opening. People are still coming here for jobs. It's still a very dynamic city. But if this crime continues, this trend, do you see it actually affecting D Denver's future? Well, that's a that's a great question about whether we separate Denver uh, from the rest of the state. Is is something special going on in Denver? Uh, and when I look just uh, a little bit behind the curtain there, we see that the crime rates are actually up in a lot of the bordering cities in Aurora, in Lakewood, in Pueblo, in Colorado Springs. So we know it's not just the city and county of Denver. Uh, it's not just a democratic city. It's these Republican areas, um, these sort of middle of the road areas. Uh, so what I think about is not necessarily, um, is it Denver, but is it something in Colorado um, as, a, as an island uh, where we have um, something more to do? And when, I, when we looked at the statistics, it's, uh, the, the statistic that worries me the most is this homicide rate um, that's happening with guns. When we, when we break it down even, even further, um, there have been uh, six incidents uh, in the last few months where there have been teenagers using guns to solve issues. Um, that's never the way to, to solve those issues is, is through violence. But when that um, solution is deadly in nature, that's a problem. So I hope um, that we look not just at Denver, but the region, the, the entire state, and look at 
how we can make this place safer, especially when it comes to guns. So it's not just homicides, but aggravated assault and robberies are also up. What do you think should be done, Patty? Well, clearly you hope that you can staff the police force. You hope the police force also can get some good training, whether it's Denver, Silver Plume, Clear Creek. Uh, we have today the tragic funeral of a police officer who was just killed in the line of duty in the area that Scott is talking about. We have two kids who were just arrested for shooting outside on East Colfax, right by the Carla Madison Recreation Center this week. Definitely kids using guns has gone down in age. And then what, what's really worrying, worrisome about that is you've got little, younger minds and they're not really thinking that they're taking a life. You don't know what they're thinking about, but they're not fully formed yet. And they've got guns, which makes no matter what they're thinking, the guns are just as fatal as if they're shot by someone older. So we have to really keep an eye on where all the changes are happening. But I would say starting with access to guns and kids is probably the place to go. Penn, the, these trends do not look good, and they especially don't look good for somebody who's running as an incumbent. Do you see this figuring into the, the next election? Sure, it will. Um, I, I would, you know, preliminary polling indicates that the number one concern, at least in Denver, um, is the lack of affordable housing tied to homelessness and then the concern with crime and, and safety. Um, and, and, you know, all of the panelists made good points. Scott is right. This is not just a Denver-centric issue. It's a regional, if not a national issue. Um, uh, Elena's right in terms of the things we need to do to address it, and Patty's right. Um, we've got to figure out, as a society, how we want to deal with guns. Um, too many of the wrong people have them, and, and I know we have a Second Amendment in the state and federal constitutions, that, but that doesn't mean everybody should be packing and firing pistols anywhere they feel like going, number one. Number two, um, we've got, uh, as we talked about the last topic, not every situation where police respond requires a pistol or a taser. We've got to bring other resources to the table to begin to deal with the safety side of things and address and de-escalate issues in a particular way. Third is a community. We have to heal. Something has happened through this pandemic where it's not just we've been isolated, we've been socked away, and we're afraid of getting sick, but we're not dealing with one another the way we did um, prior to the pandemic. We've got to figure out as a society what we need to do to address that issue also. On the lighter side of the news, lighter and fluffier, if you will, indicted Mesa County clerk Tina Peters was back in the headlines earlier this week. FBI agents had seized MyPillow executive Mike Lindell's cell phone and questioned him about Peters and her alleged attempt to breach voting machines earlier this year. Peters appeared on the stage with Lindell at his event back in August 2021, and a copy of that breached equipment's hard drive was shared with everyone. Sometimes this feels like an SNL parody. Where does it end, Scott? Well, if this is an SNL parody, I'm not laughing. The punchline was lost a long time ago. I'm ready for this sketch to end. Uh, when I uh, look at Tina Peters um, and at this whole situation, two facts are undeniably clear. Uh, one, um, our voting systems here in Colorado are safe and secure despite um, the work that she's out there uh, trying to promote. Second, um, if you break the law when it comes to voting systems, you're going to get prosecuted. Um, and so what do we do with these facts um, that are out there? Uh, for me, one, 
uh, lock her up. Uh, it's time for Tina Peters to go. And then second, it's time for us as Coloradans to think about whether we want to elect our election officials. Should these be appointed officials by a group of folks who look at the qualifications of the persons administering our election systems because it's one of our most fundamental rights that are at stake if we don't? Patty, I think Tina Peters has saved a lot of newsrooms on, an, on a slow news week. She has a gift that keeps on, keep, uh, on going. Uh, when do you think this is going to end? Probably when she goes on trial for the, what the felonies she has been accused of, and those charges are not going to go away. Let's take a few minutes to give thanks for the fact that, at least in Colorado, we may have a high murder rate, but what we have are people who believe in the sanctity of the elections. The people, the election deniers did not make the November ballot in Colorado. They have around the country. But here in Colorado, voters have shown some sense, and we hope they'll continue to. We've got a good Republican candidate who, who beat out Tina Peters, so at least we've got choices. So we laugh about this all the time, Tina Peters, but there, is, there are obviously some seri serious things at stake here. Um, do you see this contingent of the Republican Party fading out in the near future? Uh, not anytime soon. Not so long as the former president continues to spew lies and, and misrepresent about a stolen election. Sometimes when you run, you win. Sometimes you lose. When you lose, you go home. When you win, you serve. And the former president needs to understand it's time to go home and stay home. You know, the, the problem with Tina Peters and this whole um, election denier movement is it's not going to go away because it's a surrogate for other things. These people have a series of grievances. I think they believe that the America they long for is being lost. And I think in many ways what they long for is, is a more homogenous America where there aren't a lot of people of color and there aren't a lot of younger people and there aren't a lot of LGBTQ people around. And those days are gone. Um, and Tina Peters and people like her need to accept it and understand it um, and understand that if you're alleging that the election was fraudulent, the last thing you want to do is break the law yourself to prove that the election was fraudulent. It doesn't make sense. I'll be happy when she's safely behind bars. Landa, your thoughts? I'll keep this short and sweet. I don't like to give Tina Peters any more airtime than she already has. Um, I think why this latest FBI raid matters is because it really, we knew they were investigating this issue, but it really shows that they are continuing to invest in this, investigate this issue and take it really seriously, these charges. She's charged at the local level, but federal charges would obviously up the ante. And as you've noted, Penn, uh, it, it, she deserves to be behind bars. These are lies, blatant lies, um, and there should be consequences. And now it's time for our favorite part, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, your favorite disgrace. Since we can't go with Tina Peters, I'm going to go with Monday night when everyone was watching the football game and Denver went from hope to humiliation so quickly with that new season, from the penthouse to the doghouse. Penn. You know, just uh, the, the death of Christian Glass, the young man we talked about earlier, um, to have four different law enforcement agencies show up and an unarmed guy sitting in his own car and he's dead and he's the one who called for help. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of reforming policing. Elena. I hate to be redundant here, but Patty's still my, my disgrace of the week. Between, you know, all of the talk about Russell Wilson, the, the flashy suit that he wore game day, and then we have that loss that depended on a kicker of, you know, I just, we'll see if this game, this upcoming game against the Texans is any different, but that was a real disappointment, I will say. Scott. 
can't go wrong with the Broncos. But in this one, I have to say our governors in Florida and Texas using people as props and, and uh, political propaganda, sending immigrants up to northern states um, as political fodder is just unacceptable. And now let's say something nice. Patty? It's been a tough couple of years for arts institutions, uh, but we've got some anniversaries to celebrate. One is Cleo Parker Robinson's dance troupe turned 50 during the pandemic. Didn't really get to have a big celebration, but now they've got a big weekend. They're debuting a dance at the Alley Cockett that is about called Sacred Spaces. It's about black churches burning. They've managed to buy the church that is their home base and get $4 million from the state to work on it. So that's a great anniversary and one year for Meow Wolf here. Penn. No, uh, ditto um, Patty's um, 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 comment. Um, and I just also note that um, Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Studio did all of this even though Cleo suffered the loss of her husband who passed away during the pandemic. So it's just, it's, it's an amazing story of triumph over the odds. Elena, say something nice. Sure. Taco Celine, which is an amazing family-run restaurant. They have uh, locations in Littleton and Aurora. They opened their first Denver Outpost this week. Tacos start at two bucks a pop, which I think is really exciting. Um, and they're in the Santa Fe Art District at 1001 Santa Fe Drive. Definitely worth visiting. Taco sounds dreamy. Yeah. Scott, say something nice. Um, well, I want to say something nice about you and Patty and all of our guest hosts. This, it's been a big deal, I think, to uh, be hosting a show and doing it on uh, sometimes short notice. Uh, and I think you guys have all done a great job. You're so nice. Thank you, Scott. Well, now we're coming to the end of our show. And I just want to say thank you. It's been an absolute honor to be a, a guest host and to fill in uh, for our permanent host, which will be announced shortly. Um, I want to thank all of our guests for tonight. Thank you, panelists, for all of your wonderful insights. And, of course, I want to thank the audience for, for listening in. You can always watch us here on our website, our YouTube website, as well as check us out at pbs12.org. You can also check us out on Twitter. With that, I have to say, have a fantastic night. Thank you.